You know, on Christmas morning around our house, especially when we had small children growing up, uh, it was always an exciting time, but it was not only on Christmas morning, it was also all the days that led up to Christmas morning, because it seemed like every day after school, the kids would go in and look under the tree and count how many gifts they had. Now, I, I know that uh, you, you met Nathan. He's come here a couple of times and shared with us from God's Word. When he was younger, he would get upset if his brother had more gifts under the tree than he did. And we tried to explain to him, we're going to spend the same on you either way, but that didn't matter. It was the number of gifts until you opened them. And then it was the size of the gifts that made the difference. Now, I've, I've come to the realization of where that developed in their lives. And it probably came from Dad. Because every time, every Christmas, Sue will ask me, what do you want for Christmas? And I'll say, I don't care what I get as long as it's big and expensive. <laughs> And if you can only get one of those things, go for the expensive one. <laughs> well, let me tell you about, about one Christmas morning. Went down and looked under the tree, and there was one package, one gift for me that was about this big. And I was very disappointed and very uh, concerned as to what this could be. Until I opened the package, and inside that package was a key, a key to an automobile. Have you seen those commercials on TV that where on Christmas morning there's a Mercedes or a, a Lexus that's parked in the driveway with a big red bow on top of it and, and the husband and wife give each other trucks and cars and whatever it is? Well, um, that's what it's like. I'd always wondered what it was like. Uh, now, now, here's what you need to know about what I've just told you. None of it's true. <laughs> okay, I just want to make sure that you understand that. That's never happened to me. Um, I've always been praying that one day Sue might do that, either have the money to do it or the inclination to do it. Uh, but if it doesn't happen, I'll understand. But here's, here's my point in saying all that. Inside a little package that has a key to a big automobile, wouldn't you agree that you could that it would indicate to us that there are there are sometimes big packages, big gifts inside of small packages? Well, that's what I've I've decided to share with you for the next five Sundays: how big things come in small packages. And to do this, what I as I was praying about what it is that that uh, I needed to share with you uh, over the coming however long. I had told Sue, I said, I want to I preach through a book in the Bible, a fairly short book, but you know me. So a short book doesn't mean a short series. <laughs> and I thought, you know, even if you take a book like one of Paul's letters to the Ephesians, that could easily take a year to go through and get all those themes out of it. So I thought... Let's shorten it down even more than that. And I thought about preaching to you about uh, the one-chapter books of the Bible. There are In the Bible, there are five books that are one chapter long. And I want us to look at them because big things can come in small packages. And so that's what I've, what I've titled this uh, uh, this series as lessons from the Bible uh, or lessons from the one chapter books of the Bible. Now, as I, let me share with you the, what the five are. All five have one chapter and one chapter only. They are, there's one is in the Old Testament and four are in the New Testament. There's Obadiah, the Old Testament, and then the four books of, uh, of New Testament books of Philemon, Second John, Third John, and the book of Jude. I presented them for you in the way that you would encounter them if you were reading through your Bible. And so I thought, now where do I start? And, uh, and so I decided that I'd start at the beginning. And we'd look at the first one. 
The problem is that first one is Obadiah. I told Sue I can't go find an old sermon out of Obadiah. I, I, to my knowledge, I have never preached out of this book in, the, in my life. I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon preached out of the book of Obadiah in my life. I had to read it and reread it and reread it this week just to come to a place where I felt familiar enough with it that I could share some things and some truths with you. So today I want us to start in Obadiah, and I, I've, I've been kind of talking here, hoping that you'll, and I'm hearing some pages turn, I hope that you'll find um, the Old Testament book of Obadiah in your Bible. It's probably a little bit easier if you're using an electronic phone device to get to it. Just click on the, 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 the page that says Obadiah. But if you're looking it up in your, in your printed Bible, I want to help you find it. It's the first book following Amos. That help? <laughs> or it's the, it's the last book before Jonah. That might be a little bit easier for you. Uh, and I want us to, to study this verse, these verses out today and get a, get a message from it. Now, to do that, we're going to read through the book, through the letter. Uh, and I will tell you up front, Obadiah is a challenging book to just read through because it has so many geographical and uh, uh, just references to things that were going on. And the problem is this. We don't know when they were going on. Oftentimes, the prophetic books tell us that this is the word of God that came to so-and-so while such-and-such -such was king over Israel. And or, or that they served during this time period, and we can at least narrow it down to a, a decade. Sometimes even the day of the event, but a decade. But in the book of Obadiah, we can't even narrow it down to a century. Because there's no reference that Obadiah gives to us as to when the story is going to take place. But And when we read it, Probably you'll say, huh? And that's okay. because the, But the message is not hidden. It's not secretive. It's not hard for us to uncover and to open up. But it is, um, it's hard to be precise with it. So we have to talk in a, in a way, uh, if you will, in generalities. Okay, I'm going to try my best. To, to narrow it down as to when it might have taken place, what the circumstances were. Um, but I want, you to, I want you to start with me at verse 1 in this book of Obadiah. And stay, stay with me as I begin to read, because I'm not going to go too very far before I, I share with you a few things. Obadiah 1 starts off with the title verse. And it is, it starts off the vision of Obadiah. And I've stopped it on, on the screen because I want to talk about that. In Hebrew, the vision of Obadiah is two words. The first word is, comes from a word, the root word that means to see or to be able to perceive. It could talk about a visionary. Or it could even, some would suggest uh, uh, that it refers to a revelation from God to Obadiah. Second word is the word Obadiah. Uh, that word is a word that means the servant of Yahweh. Or it could say, and some of your versions might even translate it or put in the notes, a worshiper of Yahweh. Here's the problem with this, we don't know exactly who Obadiah is. There, it's a common name. In fact, there are 13 different people in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that are called by the name of Obadiah. And depending on which commentary you read, you'll get all sorts of different answers as to which one of them it could be. For instance, uh, uh, in Second uh, in Chronicles, it talks about uh, about there being an Obadiah uh, that, 
that saved some of the uh, the people of the, of the land. In Kings, I think it's in Second Kings, when Ahab and and Jehoshaphat or Ahab and Jezebel were king and queen over Israel, and they were attacking the priests, you know, and and, uh, and this was during the days of Elijah, and uh, that there was a servant in in Ahab's court whose name was Obadiah, and he saw what was taking place, and he hid a hundred of the uh, of the priests of God, and hid them in a cave and, and snuck food to them to keep them alive to protect them. Some have suggested that that's who this Obadiah is. Uh, the problem is we don't really know. We're not exactly sure who this man is. As you look at the verses that we've read so far, and by the way, that's as much information about the writers you're going to get in the book. There's not any more. We don't know who his... His daddy, who his mama, who his mama daddy. We don't know any of this who he is, where he came from, when he lived, what was on his heart, what, what kind of a job. Was he a farmer? Was he a, a, a prophet? Was he a priest? We don't know any of those things. But here's what we do know. According to the word of God, God revealed something to this man. And when God tells you something, he doesn't just tell it for you. To have information. He tells it to you. So you can use that information. In the world around you. Now, I don't know if you know it or not. But you just got preached to. <laughs> because here. You come to the you come to church. On Sunday mornings. And you receive a, a word from God. And you take notes. And you write these things down. And they become a part of your life. But it's not just so you can. Become more intelligent. Or more informed. It's so it can change your life. So you can change the world around you. Obadiah received a revelation from God. But the idea was that Obadiah would share that revelation with the world. Now what's the revelation about? Next phrase. This is the theme of the book. And that is. Thus says the Lord concerning Edom. That grabs you doesn't it? Don't you want to know about Edom? I mean, wasn't Edom on your news this morning? Isn't this something that has been consuming your heart and your time and your mind? I want to tell you something. That's one of the reasons why I struggle with the book of Obadiah this week as I prepared. Because I don't know when, if ever... I've given two thoughts about Edom or Edomites. In fact, if you go back and do a Google search, you will find that the people that were referred to as the Edomites kind of leave the world scene about the first century after Christ. You don't read about them anymore. Now, before this, you will. I mean, remember, they're going to come all the way. They're going to go all the way back to the patriarchs in the Old Testament. But by our day, they're not, they're, they're not necessarily essential workers. And so it's hard. How do you preach to somebody about something that you really don't care about? I, I, you understand what I'm getting at? I'm not saying if you're an Edomite, I don't mean to offend you. If, you're an, if you can tell me you're an Edomite today, I'm going to say prove that one. But let me tell you a little bit about the Edomites. The Edomites, the word Edom is a word that was interchangeably, in fact, is used interchangeably here as well as elsewhere in the Old Testament for the nation of Esau. Esau, do you know who he is? Sure you do. He's the twin brother of Jacob. And so as twin brothers, they, they grew up together longer than anybody else who, who's not a twin. If you're a twin or you have a twin, well, I guess if you are a twin, you have a twin. Uh, <clears throat> but twins have known each other from the womb. And the Bible tells us that when Jacob and Esau were in uh, Rebekah's womb, that they battled with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? Why is this, 
all this, and, and God said to her, because you have two nations inside of you, and they are at war with one another, even from the very beginning. They don't get along at the very beginning. There, there's some jealousy. There's some, and they, when, when, when they were born, Esau was born first, and he came out all hairy and red, so they named him Esau, which means red. That's what Edom means. And when Jacob came out, he was, well, he was more passive, at least at the start. And so they named him Jacob because that meant that he was kind of a trickster, kind of a conniver. Now, Jacob and Esau, you remember in the story of their lives being reared, Jacob uh, loved to take care of, gar of the garden and loved to cook with mom in the kitchen. But Esau loved to be out hunting wild game. He loved the outdoors. He was the prototypical outdoorsman, the, the uh, everyday man. And because of it, Isaac, their father, loved Esau, and Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't, like, they didn't care for the other, but they, they preferred one over the other. And let me, this is not a sermon about parenting, but let me just say this. Parents, you have to be absolutely on your guard that you don't prefer one of your children over another. It will cause all sorts of problems. In this case, it caused a millennium and a half, almost two millennia, of problems in the relationship between Jacob and Esau. Because here's what happens to small twin babies. They grow up. And what they have been reared with and what they have experienced through their life they grow up and they put into practice as adults and the turmoil between Jacob and Esau that began in the womb continued on throughout their lives growing up being reared together and you remember that Jacob tricked Esau out of uh, out of his birthright and out of the blessing and uh Esau, when he realized what he had done, said to his brother, his twin brother, Jacob, he says, listen, dad's sick, and he's going to die soon. So for his sake, I'm, not gonna, I, I'm, I'm just going to let this run off my back. But I want you to know, as soon as dad's dead and we buried him, I'm going to kill you. Now, that's my paraphrase of what uh, I'm going to come looking for you. And so Jacob had to leave, flee to his mother's homeland and find a, find a wife. But there came a time when Esau wanted, or when Jacob wanted to come back home. The problem was back home is where Esau lived. What will happen to me? Well, I don't know. I've got to get back home. But what if Esau comes out and he's still mad? What if he, when he said that uh, in earlier days, he really meant it? So, uh, Jacob decides to come back home, take his chance. And there's a story about this in the book of Genesis, how they were reunited. Uh, Jacob threw himself prostrate on the ground. Uh, prostrate on the ground. Uh, that's, uh, I guess I have my physical one on my mind. Uh, on the ground uh, before him, and Esau says, get up. And he hugs him and he embraces him and they... They make up. Do you know what Jacob and Esau both had by this time? Kids. And you know what kids do? They grow up just like mom and dad do. And their experiences in life sometimes become a part of their value system. And, and there was already some animosity between the offspring of Esau and the offspring of Jacob. And so the Edomites, now let me fast forward a thousand years. The, Edom, the Edomites, or the land of, of Esau, is going to, they're going to settle in, a land, in the area south of the Dead Sea. Okay, now I didn't put a map on here, so I'm going to create a map. Here is Israel. Right here, let's say right here, is Jerusalem. Come over here, it's the Dead Sea. The Jordan River goes on up north to the Dead Sea, and south of Judah, south of Israel, south of the Dead Sea, 
is the area where the Edomites settled. It was a small, a small piece of land, probably about 15 or 20 miles wide and maybe 75 miles long. And it went down south into the desert or into what we're going to read here in a moment, the Negev. That was the desert area to the south. And that's where they lived. When the children of Israel, Jacob becomes Israel. Remember that? When they leave Egypt and they come through the, the, uh, uh, the wilderness experience and they're coming now, uh, closing in on the promised land or the land of Canaan, they, come, they arrive at the land of, of Edom or of Esau, and they're going to ask permission to come through, to take a shortcut through their territory. We won't eat any of your, of your food. We won't drink any of your water. Just let us go through. After all, we're, we're kin. We're, we're brothers. And Edom said, no, go around. And so they did it, and, and it created an animosity, not, or reignited an animosity between Jacob, between the children of, of Jacob and the children of Esau. And that continued for the remainder of the Old Testament period. There would be times when what would happen would be that there would be raids, uh, the, the, there would be little skirmishes and little wars, that Israel had to constantly deal with. Uh, and in the Old Testament, it seems like one of the big foes that they faced were the Philistines, the Ammonites, and the Edomites. The Edomites also gave birth to a man named Herod, Herod the Great. He was the king when... Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Do you remember that? And he ordered, he issued the edict that all the newborn babies, two years and younger, should be executed because one of them has been born to be the king of the Jews, and he was the king of the Jews. That Herod was an Edomite. Now his family had converted to Judaism. And so they, he grew up as a practicing Jew, but racially, he was an Arab. Okay? Do you see some of the dynamic that's going to come into play here? I don't know if you have, you probably haven't heard anything about the Edomites on the news lately. But you may have heard some things of some, of some turmoil between Israel and their neighbors, the Arabs, and the other Arabian kinds of, of uh, people, uh, the Iranian, the, uh, the Saudi Arabians, uh, the Egyptians, all these, this is, this is at the center of what Obadiah is going to be talking about. So this is a vision that God gives to this worshiper of his, a servant of his, and, and it's going to be about Edom. Now let's read what the vision is. From here... After this point, this, the things that are on the screen now are in prose, just normal writing. Everything that happens beyond this is in poetry. And so it's to be understood in some way, metaphorically, symbolically of some degree, but it also is giving us a very clear message. So let's look at it. <clears throat> the first thing that we're, that we're going to encounter as we as we uh, study this together, the first four verses, we're going to see the haughtiness of Edom. Edom had an attitude. Okay? I am so glad they can't say that of us. <laughs> or at least of me. They might be able to. But Edom had a haughty spirit. And look what it says, beginning at, taking up again at verse 1. We've heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Here's what the report is. Here's what the message is. Rise up, let us, uh, let us rise against her for battle. Against who? Edom. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. 
you who live in the clefts of the rock. What that what that's referring to is as Israel lived in this region south of the of the Dead Sea, there were it was a mountainous region, a lot of cliffs. And they eventually moved up into the sheer, uh, the sheer cliff, into the caves that were there, because that would make it more difficult for attacking uh, for invaders to attack them. And so they thought, who could ever bring us down? There's there's kind of that haughty attitude. He says, you you dwell in the clefts of the rock, your lofty dwellings, uh, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Now, God is saying here, Edom, you have this idea that you are, you're undefeatable. You are, uh, there's nothing that can happen to you. And your enemies may have a hard time with you, but I want you to know something, says God. I won't. I won't. I can take care of this, and I'm going to. That's the haughtiness that we see of Edom. Then, of course, what usually happens, a haughty spirit is a humbly. And the next that we read, it, it, it seems to me, is the humbling of Edom. Or of Edom being brought down or being shown their true colors. Side note. We oftentimes are like Edom. We think that we are indestructible. That everything is perfect. That we are making everything perfect. And all of a sudden we find out we aren't quite so much. Humbly. We get brought down. When we think a little too highly of ourselves. One of the ways that the Bible discusses this. Is it says that pride goeth before fall. And as I, I have a proud heart. Yes I might be getting big in my own eyes. But there's a humbling coming. God will cut us down to size. So look, look at the humbling of Edom. Verse 5. The thieves came to you. If plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? They're gonna, if, it take, if they got to climb those cliffs, they're only going to take what they can take out, what they need, what they want. You're gonna, you think, well, I'm going to be able to, to make it through. If great, grape gatherers came, uh, came to you and stole your grapes, wouldn't they leave a few? Wouldn't they leave some of the gatherers? Some of the gleanings. How Esau has been pillaged. His treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. You, can't, you think you're safe because you've made this, this, these alliances with these nations around you. By the way... One of the dates that is also put on the writing of this book is just following the invasion of Judah from Bab the Babylonians. And in 586, the, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar leveled the uh, uh, temple mount and, the, and, and Jerusalem, uh, tore down the walls. The walls were, that's why Nehemiah had to go back and rebuild the walls. That's why Ezra and others had to go back and rebuild the temple because of the destruction. And the problem is this. Esau was in on it. Esau was supportive of the Babylonians, probably for their own preservation. I mean, if, they, if, the, if the Babylonians are going to come in and take Judah, Edom's just a hop, step and a jump away. And so they were, they were supportive, and they, they entered into alliances with other nations and other peoples that were around them. That, and he says, but you've got these peace treaties, but you're not smart enough to figure out these guys are going to take you the moment they can. He says, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, the understanding out of Mount Esau? 
This is referring to the mountains where they, where they live, the mountain range. Verse 9, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon. That word for Timon, uh, it's believed to be an early form of the word Yemen. That there is a nation on the southern tip of the Arabian, of the Arabian Peninsula today called Yemen. It is in the news. I read a report this week that they are a war-ravaged people because of all the stuff with Iran and Saudi Arabia and all that turmoil in the Middle East. And that if, if the wars continue by the year 2022, Yemen will be the poorest nation on earth. Starvation is already hitting as much as 75 to 80 percent of their population. That's, the, that's what this is referring to, how, how Esau goes down south, even all the way to the tip, uh, and, and all, all the way to uh, having their, their strong warriors in Timon or in Yemen uh, become discouraged and dismayed, so that it says, so that every man from Esau is going to be cut off by a slaughter. Because, verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, I find that an intriguing reference, what Obadiah gives, your brother Jacob. As hard as it is for us to conceive the fact that these two were twins, twins in the womb, and sometimes twins in the womb are, can be a little bit active, but these now... 1,500 years or more later, here they are, enemies with one another, but yet Obadiah, and remember he got, Obadiah is speaking what God is revealing to him. Obadiah says, he calls them your brother, Jacob. It says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, done by you, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off. What's the next word? Forever. On that day, you stood aloof. On the day that strangers carried off his wealth, foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were just like them. This is talking about when the invasion, when the horde, whenever it was, the invasion of, of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem, they were a part of it. But he says, but do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune, do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of his distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not sit at the crossroads to cut off the fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. You know why? Because God says, I'm watching it all. And these are my people. And how you deal with your brother is how you deal with my people. Do you hear the humbling? There's a day coming. Now, if, if this is taking place, as some have suggested, in the year 850, 45 BC, or if it's happening in the year following the destruction of the temple in 586 BC, or at some other period of time, the warning was given to to um, to Edom, in this case, a long time before any action took place. Let me just step outside the sermon again and ask you a question. Does it sometimes frustrate you that when God doesn't answer your, your prayers or your requests right now? Do you sometimes get frustrated with God because he seems to be operating on a completely different calendar than I'm on? I've asked, I asked God last Friday for this, and I still don't have it. Come on, that's the way we are, isn't it? It took a long time. God made a promise and he revealed to Obadiah, whoever he is, that he would humble, bring Edom down. Now, before I go on, 
I gotta say, this isn't a real pick-me-up kind of book so far, is it? And it's, it's doom and gloom over people. I don't even know who they are, where they live, what they look like. In fact, the people who are apparently no longer even living amongst us. So what can we get out of this kind of a revelation that will make any difference in our lives? Well, let me tell you the way God typically works in his prophetic utterances. First, he identifies the problem. Then he talks about the execution of his judgment over that problem. And then he says, now here's the hope. Here's what you need to cling to. So this is what I want to look at. The rest of the chapter, I think, is about the hope of God's people. What would be the hope that Israel could have? Just that the Edomites get destroyed, that a comet flies down in and explodes and they're all dead? That might be neat for about 30 minutes, but then afterwards you say, man, you know, that's kind of heavy. It's, I, I, and I wasn't alive, I wasn't there. Some of you may, may remember when the, when the atomic bomb was dropped on Japan. It ended a war, but it destroyed an awful lot of lives. It may have saved lives, but it also lost lives. And, and sometimes those kinds of things are hard for us as humans to process, are they not? So God wants to give us some hope, and it's a whole lot more hope than that one day these guys will be wiped off the face of the earth. It's talking about the kind of hope that happens when everything that's wrong is made right. Because if you get rid of the Edomites, you still got the Philistines. And if you get rid of the Philistines, you still got the Arabians. And you get rid of the Arabians, you still got the, the people of Iran, the Persians. So wiping an entire group of people off the planet can't be the best hope, the best solution. What is? Look at, look, begin, look at the next verse, uh, beginning at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon you. Now the day of the Lord is a reference to a time, an event that is on God's timetable. It hasn't happened yet, but it's a day that is coming, and this is not a message on the second coming or any, anything like that, but I just want you to know that the day of the Lord is going to come when after God has, has allowed this world to go through this great tribulation period where his judgment is poured out on these proud, haughty people, where at the end of it, Jesus is going to return to this earth. And when he returns to this earth, all of evil is going to be destroyed. Satan's going to be cast, you know, tied, chained up and, and put away for a thousand years. And, and during that time, Jesus is going to physically, this is into the book of Revelation. Jesus is physically going to reign on this earth for a thousand years. That's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord speaks of his judgment and then the hope of Jesus' return. And what's going to happen during those thousand years is things that are all messed up are going to be set right. But that's even not going to end it. And after that thousand years, when Satan and, the, and all of God's enemies and all of Satan's minions are cast into the sea, into the lake of fire forever and forever and forever, they're completely... They're annihilated at least as far as their influence on the world goes anymore. And you know what God's going to do then? The Bible tells us that God's going to make everything new. A new heaven and a new earth. Now, I can't believe that Obadiah, whenever he's writing this, has a clear understanding of the theological timeline. I'm not even sure if I have a, have a clear... Because there will be some who will disagree with the order that I just that I just gave to you. But I know that God knows. And in Obadiah, as God reveals to him, is going to talk about the day of the Lord. 
It's near on all nations. As you've done, verse 15 says, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your head. Don't think you're, gonna, you're getting away with anything with God. You, you might for a day or a month or a year, maybe even a lifetime. But God's going to settle the score. God's going to deal with our pride and our prideful actions. And he says, um, uh, he, he says, verse 16, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continuously. They shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. Why? Because God said so. Verse 19, those of the Negev, that's the south, that's the area of, of, of Esau, shall possess Mount Esau. Those of the Shephelah, that's the plains area up around Jerusalem, shall possess the land of the Philistines, and they shall possess the land of Ephraim, the land of Samaria, that's the land to the north. And Benjamin will possess Gilead. That's right there in the heart of it all. The exiles of the hosts of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as the Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. You know what that's saying? Israel is going to reclaim the land. More about that in a moment. But I want you to read verse 21 with me, then I'm going to make a couple applications. Saviors, saviors, deliverers, some versions might say, shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Big things come in small packages. That ended a whole lot different than it started, didn't it? I mean, what looked like doom and gloom is filled with hope and, and, and recovery. And so what does that have to do with us? Because as I said a moment ago, I haven't struggled with the Edomites for a long time, since high school. I mean, it's been a long time that, that I've even thought about the Edomites. But God, who, who sees all, knows all, does all, and who lives in eternity, he is still in the process of carrying out every promise he's made. And he will, he will fully, fully carry out all of those things during the day of the Lord. That's a time that's yet to come. So that indicates to me that this is a time of hope. We're living in a time of hope. Listen, I know there's plenty of despair, plenty of doom and gloom. I mean, it's, it's heavy when the president of the United States, regardless of how you feel about his politics, is in a critical situation. And it, it's, it's frightening what, what happens. Plus all the, I mean, that's just in, the, in this mix of all this other stuff that's going on in, in our nation as well as in our world. I need some hope. God is going to bring hope to the world again. Now here's what I, what I want you to see in this promised new kingdom. Here's the thing that I want you to know. I've got, I've got three, three points that I want to make. The first is this, that the promised coming kingdom will be a time of redemption, a time of salvation. To redeem something means to buy it back. You know those little coupons that you clip out of the newspaper? If you take the newspaper in one of the little coupons, it'll talk about the redemption value. You take it in, you can redeem it for 15 cents on milk, whatever. That's, you trade this in and you get this in return. The promised kingdom of God 
is going to be a time when he redeems his own, his own people. Now, we've already been bought and paid for through the blood of Jesus Christ. But we're still living in this mess, aren't we? But in the day of the Lord, that which God owns, he will gather together to himself. Israel is called God's people. And he, here in this, in this message through Obadiah to his people, he calls them his people. And he wants them to know, even though you have been carried away by the spiteful acts of the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Egyptians or by the, by the Edomites or Ammonites or the Philistines, whoever it is, you're my people. And I'm, I will bring you home. I will bring you all the way home. Let me ask you, do you know that you're a child of God? If you know you're a child of God, know this. God will see you safely all the way through. No matter what happens. And I'm not saying that means you're protected. You've got some sort of a, of a suit around you that makes you uh, impregnable to problems. No, you can, you'll go through problems. In fact, Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I will see you through them. It's a time of redemption. Let me share with you a second truth. And that is that this kingdom to come is a time of restoration. As I, as I was talking, as we were reading through Obadiah, what God was going to do and how this group from Zion was going to settle in this area and all. You know what? He was reclaiming the land of promise. But if you'll put that all on a map where he's talking about, it's bigger than it is now. The nation of Israel is not a very big country, geographically. Uh, the land of the Edomites was not a very big country, geographically. But if you go from south to north, from the Arabian Peninsula all the way up to the mountains uh, of Ephraim and that area up to the, where the Syrians are, that's a lot of turf. And Israel has not always lived in those areas. But that was the land that God gave to them. Let me go, go over to Joshua uh, and read the boundaries that God was going to give to the children of Israel as the promised land. That has been taken from them time and time and time again. But God is going to restore it to them. There, this world may have taken a lot from you. Okay, some of the things that you thought of, thought about, and wished for and longed for when you were young enough to think about him and wish for him and long for him. They may have missed you, but if God's promised them to you, he will restore them to you. Wow. It's going to be a great day, isn't it? This day of the Lord, this promised kingdom is going to be a time of restoration. Let me just give you one, one last uh, point. The day of the Lord will also, the kingdom of God will also produce a time of renewal. When things are made new. Didn't, don't you wish that it were true that there was an easy button that you could push and redo things? Don't you wish that life had mulligans, do-overs, star-agains? Don't you wish you could undo what you did yesterday or the day before, or the week before, or the year before, or the life before? Don't you wish you could undo some things? Do you ever sometimes say about yourself, I wish I knew then what I know now. I think I would do it differently then. Anybody? The time when Jesus comes to this earth, rules on this earth, and a and a new heaven and a new earth is made. Do you know what it tells us in the book of Revelation happens? The curse is destroyed. This curse, this sin that Adam and Eve so innocently introduced us to when they disobeyed God and ate from the fruit of the tree, it has borne horrible result 
results in the history of mankind. Am I right? And it's, I'm not saying this is the worst thing that's happened, but here we are in this coronavirus. Where did it come from? I, I don't mean politically, but I mean, what was, why? It's because of the curse. And there are, and after this virus has come and gone, there'll be another one that will come and go. And we're going to go through all these cycles because the curse is still here. And it's still having an impact on our lives. And until everything is made new and the curse is destroyed, we're going to deal with things. We're going to struggle with things. But look forward to the time when there will be a time of renewal, when everything is made new. That's the promise that Obadiah receives, that he delivers to the children of Israel, the, the, the pronouncement to the people of Edom. And what he's saying is, listen, this may not seem like much, but big things come in small packages. Hold on to them. I want you to bow your head with me, if you will. Father, these next few minutes as we have digested or are digesting the information from your word today. Father, I pray today for each person in this room and each person that's watching us that today, Father, we might know and understand who you are, your sovereign control over the events and the affairs of mankind and that we are marching to the drumbeat of your will being done. Father, we are leading up to the, the time that may happen today. It may happen 10,000 years from today. But that certainly will happen when Jesus returns and when Jesus restores and redeems and renews. Not only all of creation, but our lives as well. So Lord, I pray that each one of us today would see what a mighty God we serve. And would see how important it is that we understand the promises you've made to us. And are willing, Father, to trust in those promises. So Father, I just pray that you'll have your way in our hearts and in our Speak to our hearts now, Father, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.